to Are Your Parents Proud of You? I am your host, Matthew Schufreder. That is my sidekick, my Tigger, my Winnie the Pooh. Wait, uh, which one's the sidekick, Tigger or Winnie the Pooh? We'll let the audience decide. Griffin McCorgo, how are you, buddy? I'm doing all right. I'm doing pretty good. I'm excited for this uh, the episode this week. Why don't you tell us a little bit about who our guest of honor is? Okay, this is really exciting for me. I just want to say, I've been watching him on YouTube since like, early 2010. So the fact that he's on our show uh, is awesome. We have Alonzo Duralde. Alonzo is a film critic for TheRap.com. He is also the co-host of multiple podcasts, Who Shot Ya, Breakfast All Day, a film and a movie podcast, and Linoleum Knife, the grand start of them all. It has over 500 episodes and it started a whole bunch of spinoffs LKTV, Linoleum Knife and Fork, uh, so many uh, great podcasts that he does with his husband, Dave White. He is also the author of Have Yourself a Movie Little Christmas and 101 Movies to See for Gay Men. So this is exciting because I get he says my name. That's awesome. Uh, and I don't want <laughs> I, I okay, we're gonna, I'm going to stop talking because uh, we want to get straight to the episode. Please enjoy my conversation with Alonzo Duralde. Hi, Alonzo. Hello, Matthew. Thanks for having me. Thank you for doing this. I'm very excited. Excellent. So it's actually really funny. Not even funny. It, it feels weird to be actually doing this on this one year anniversary of COVID. Not even one year anniversary of just everything starting to shut down. Um, how are you, first of all, and how do you think you've changed in this one year we've been doing this? You know, I'm I'm crazily lucky in all this because, you know, much of my job was something I could already do at home. And then pretty much once the theaters closed and people started sending out links, it was like, oh, well, then I, I guess I can do all of my job at home then. Um, so, I, you know, compared to a lot of folks, I, I've had the, the, the privilege and the luxury of not having to venture out in the world and deal with, you know, like the people screaming at you about masks or trying to cough in your space or whatever. Um I, yeah, I have. I, I may discover once this is all over if I've changed or what I learned about myself. But I, I, I guess I, I have a greater capacity than I ever realized of never leaving my apartment, which is pretty much what's been happening. Um, you know, there are days when I wish I could, but you know, it's 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 good. My husband keeps me sane. I keep him sane. It's been working out very nicely. I was going to say, when I was living with my parents, I told my dad, this is like the ultimate relationship test for a marriage. <laughs> like, how have you guys been? Yeah, we used to say, like, you know, can you survive going on a, like a two-day car trip together? But I think this definitely trumps. <laughs> Do you think you can go, like, obviously theaters are reopening. I just heard that for Los Angeles and California dining and theaters can start opening back up soon. Do you personally think you feel ready to go back to a theater? I mean, not this second, like, you know, two weeks after the second vaccine, you know, maybe depending on, you know, all the other factors, like what's your ventilation system like these days and how blocked are these other seats going to be and, you know, all that other kind of stuff. I mean, I suspect that a lot of us who are wearing masks now will probably continue wearing masks once this is all over. I think there are parts of the world where that's just 
a common thing that happens. And, and I, I can see that becoming part of a lot of people's lives. So, yeah, I, I mean, I do want to go back to a movie theater and I, I hope to that the, the things line up that I feel safe doing so. Right. It, I, I think the, it's going to be the weirdest thing once I see like someone else's chin or nose <laughs> for the first time. Like I, like I work in customer service. And so when I'm in oh, the wow. break room and I'm with like other um, staff, like once someone takes their mask off, I'm like, oh, this is what you look like. Like I spent <laughs> the first two weeks like training with them and it was all mass socially distant. I'm like, oh, this people have faces, you know. Yeah, I have, I have a friend who's working on a TV show right now, and it's he he's new this season, but other people have worked there for a long time. And so he has these shirts made up with his face on them so that people would know who he was from day to day because, you know, otherwise with a mask, you could be anybody. Who knows? Right. Like, this is where you want to, like, if you're an actor, like, you just bring your headshot everywhere you go and just kind of, like, just hold it up to people or, like, let that be your new license plate or something. Put it on like a little wooden stick, like those fans they give you at funeral homes, you know, and just right. Or, or do like the chorus line thing where it's like over your face. Just <laughs> Bingo. Yes, exactly. And if you can do, you know, eight bars of one, that that's good too. Right. So speaking of uh, you, uh, I want to talk about little Alonso. So I know you grew up in Georgia and you were, is it this right? You were the youngest of seven. That is correct. Yes. Yes. What were you like as a child? Uh, probably unbearably precocious. Um, I, you know, I think the thing about having, not only was I the youngest, but like, I'm, I'm very much a change of life baby. Like my mother had six kids in eight years and then five years later I was born. So I was in a hurry to be considered, you know, older. I was in a, so like, I was in a hurry to read. I was in a hurry to talk uh, all of that stuff. So, uh, I, I definitely was out of the gate early just because I was surrounded by all these older people and I wanted to be, you know, uh, ideally on their level. Um, but you know, uh, I, I, you know, you'd have to, you'd probably have to ask my siblings what I was like as a kid, and they'll give you a really unvarnished <laughs> answer, I'm sure. Yeah, and it's just, and everyone in your family who who they grew up, they all became doctors, right? <laughs> uh, a lot of us. My my father was a doctor, and then um, my three brothers are all doctors. One of my sisters is a doctor. Um, one of the brothers who is a doctor married a doctor. One of the sisters who isn't a doctor married a doctor. And now I have a niece who is a doctor as well. So hooray for the MDs. <laughs> so it's it's just like the Duralde version of like General Hospital or something. Everywhere you go, <laughs> there's just a doctor everywhere. Yeah, and yeah, believe me, uh, if you if you walk into like if my family get together and say Dr. Duralde, a lot of heads are going to pop up, but not mine. <laughs> Do you, is there, was there a movie in particular that really stuck out to you that kind of made you think well I kind of like discussing movies um well it's, it's hard to say uh I, I mean I definitely was I was obsessed with movies before I even really was going to them it's this weird thing I was related to like the the kid in searching for Bobby Fisher who sees like two guys playing chess in the park and he comes home and he recreates a chessboard in his room um my mother loved movies and, you know, she would watch them on TV a lot. And I think we had like a big Clark Gable poster hanging somewhere in the house. Uh, so like when I was a kid and I started reading, uh, I would read the newspaper, uh, the movie section of the newspaper every day in the Atlanta Journal Constitution. And I could tell you what was showing at like any theater in a 10 mile radius from our house because I knew them from driving by them. But I really wasn't even going to movies yet. But there was something about the idea of them that I was just kind of obsessed with and the first one I really remember going to see was my uh, my oldest sister took me to see uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory in its original release. Oh. And uh, it like 
scarred me slash branded me for life. Like it's, you know, that that's the first movie that really, I just remember the, the impact of it all. Right. Um, was it the boat ride that kind of. Oh yeah, for in? sure. The boat in the tunnel. Yeah. The, the, the worm and the chicken head and all that stuff. Like, yeah, what, you know, and, and just, just, it's a mix of things. Like it's, it's children being punished and it's, you know, words on screen and it's, you know, there, there's like, I, I, could watch that i could sit down and watch that movie right now like it's it's still one of my all-time favorites it was crazy like i like yeah i know that movie and i watched it as a kid and it didn't scare me until probably sixth seventh eighth grade when i rewatched it i'm like oh this is this is unpleasant <laughs> like i don't know what was what was army or what i was doing that you know five or four yeah that's one of those ones i think you you go through a couple of phases with because because i remember i saw it as a kid loved it and then didn't see it for a long time and then at one time in college somehow it came up in conversation and we rented the tape and watched it again and we were all like oh my god this movie is so dark and torturous what what were our parents thinking letting us see this thing right and the songs was... were great <laughs> yeah this love the songs um I have to ask, as a Chicago native, like, was Siskel and Ebert a big part of your life growing up? Did you watch at the movies Huge, a lot? hugely, yes. In fact, I, I just, uh, there's a, a, a podcast that's coming up later this year that's all about Siskel and Ebert, which I just talked to for this. Because, yeah, I, I started watching them on public television when I was about eight years old. And it was really sort of the, the first understanding I had of like, oh, this is a job. This is a thing you can do for a living. And um, yeah, I was totally hooked on that show. Uh, I mean, part of it was because like, you didn't really see film clips on television all that often. There, you know, unless they were in an ad or something like that was not, it wasn't like, you know, the internet and you go to YouTube and you can see like all these previews or whatever. Like, so that was, first of all, just the only place you see like even snippets of movies. But then just also this notion of like, oh, okay, so seeing these films and talking about them and having an opinion about them and, and discussing them in a larger context and all that stuff, like, one can grow up to do that, you know? And so that that was definitely a, a huge thing for me as a, as a kid. All right. How did you parent? Did, so was it film journalism that you wanted to start doing or, or was film criticism? You know, I, I think, you know, you go through that phase as a kid where like, you know, I want to be a whatever and you have a half right. understanding of what that is. You know, I'm sure I wanted to be a mailman for a while, you know, uh, but I'd say probably from about like 10 or 11, I was like, okay, film critic. Yes, that like I was, you know, I was reading the, the you know, Eleanor Ringle and the in the AJC uh, as you know, once I got to like junior high, I kind of like would make my parents subscribe to the New Yorker so I could read Pauline Kale because she was still writing right. back then. Um, yeah, I, I, that, I kind of locked into that pretty early on. And then, uh, you know, my, my dad, bless his heart, um, I think it's it, part of it, you know, he was a physician with a big family. So he understood the whole thing about, you know, like stability and a guaranteed income and that kind of thing. And also like both my parents were Spanish immigrants. So, you know, there's that whole thing of like coming to the United States and your children having opportunities you never had and whatever. But, you know, he really kept pushing me on the whole doctor thing. Even when like, mm -hmm. I, it was clear that I was inept at science. I didn't, that wasn't my, my area of interest. Uh, frankly, can't even still stand the sight of blood. I'm a total like softy in that department. Um, and he would bring up 
like Somerset mom and this Spanish playwright named Pio Baroja to be like, well, can't you be a writer and a doctor? You know, and I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure one could, but no, thank you. Right. That's not going to well, be my life. Yeah. Multitasking's hard. So like, oh, I guess. Yeah. yeah. One task is, is more than I can handle, you know? Yeah. Like when I was in the film criticism, like in seventh and eighth grade, and I told my parents, like, this is something I'm interested in. And my dad goes, well, maybe when you go to high school, try out the sports team first. <laughs> and so and so I did. And then after the first day of tryouts, I said, oh, I can't go. I have film club to go to instead. We're watching the deer hunter. <laughs> did your dad like try to make you do sports as well? Oh, oh, I totally had to do sports. Uh, in fact, yeah, the I, I, I did a sport a season for my freshman and sophomore year was always terrible. It was al always at least made it a point to do ones where my crappy performance wouldn't impact anybody else. So I was never on a team sport. I like, I ran cross country and I swam and, you know, I, so I could just fail on my own and not, right. you know, have to get in anybody else's way. And then thank goodness my junior and senior year, I did debate team. And that meant we were off at a tournament every weekend. And that was my, my get out of jail free card from having to do sports. So that, that was a, that was a real game changer. Yeah. When I told him after I stopped, I, I could tell my dad was kind of crushed when I was like, I, I don't want, because <laughs> he was a baseball coach and he taught basketball and was a gym teacher. Sure, yeah, no, my dad grow. played, my dad played rugby back in Spain. So he was very into that whole thing. Like, yeah, no, no, sorry. Yeah. How did, did he take it well when you told him like, this isn't for me? Um, I mean, it, it was a long process, literally, like all through high school, all through college, like, really, this is, you know, and even after college, it was like, will you, if you want to go to grad school, I will happily, like, anywhere you, if there's something else, like, he just did not, it didn't occur to him that this was like, a thing that people made a living doing and not that he's wrong, frankly, and surely like nowadays it's harder than ever. But I mean, uh, I think, but by the time I was out in the world and doing this stuff, he got it, you know, like I remember there was a time where in the early 90s, the first time I moved to Los Angeles, uh, I was really concerned about telling him that because he, generally speaking, liked having family, you know, the closer to home, the better. And, you know, I was going to be moving to the other side of the country. And, uh, and, and that was one of the few conversations where he's like, no, 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 this is, this is the thing you're doing. And if you need to go there to do it, then, then go do it, you know? And so like, I think once I was 25 ish, like he finally sort of wrapped his head around the idea that I was not going to like drop everything and go back and, you know, go to med school, you know? Right. Uh, but, th but that I also wasn't going to be like destitute either. The, I mean, you know, maybe destitute ish, but you know, uh, <laughs> he was okay with it. <laughs> Right. Cause then, so, so you went to Vanderbilt and yeah. for Vanderbilt, was this a major in journalism or was it, was that you even have a film criticism program? They, well, they didn't have, they, they didn't have a film school. They do now, I think, strangely enough, and they didn't have a journalism school. So, which actually wound up being a really good thing for me in two ways. One, I got to make up a major. <laughs> oh, so yeah, I did an interdisciplinary, which basically meant like every film class I could get my hands on, which there weren't that many. And then like, you know, stuff in the theater department, like I took an entire semester of directing. I took an entire semester of acting, figuring like, if I'm going to write about how other people do this, I should maybe try and 
understand the mechanics of it myself, you know, so that was really valuable. But then also, um, we had a really good student paper, because apparently, mm -hmm. the best college papers are from the colleges that don't have J schools, right. and where it's just people who want to do it and are, are genuinely interested in doing it and aren't just fulfilling some sort of class requirement. So, um, you know, I, I started writing for them as a freshman. I was working with uh, Kurt Holman, who went on to be the film critic for Creative Loafing in Atlanta for a long time, and now co-hosts a podcast called The Comics Canon, and he's one of my dearest friends in the world. Um, but, you know, I had access to, to write kind of, you know, whatever I wanted to do in the paper. I was, I, I worked on the radio station, which was very helpful for me in terms of like being able to sit behind a mic and make form sentences and talk about things. Um, you know, I even, uh, you know, my senior year, I got to, I directed a play, you know, like oh. the thing about college is like, especially if like me, you're barely ever going to class, it, you have access to all of these resources that you can use. Right. And, you know, uh, and that was sort of where my education came from. But uh, yeah, I, th there was nothing, there was nothing there that was, the path that I wanted to do, but I think making that path for myself probably meant that I was more interested in doing it just because if I'd had to go to class to do it, that would have turned me off because I had to go to class to do it. You know, um, the other cool thing about Vanderbilt was that uh, when I was there, we didn't have cable on campus yet. So the campus cinema was still kind of a big deal. And uh, so I was, uh, I, I was on the committee that kind of programmed that throughout the year and actually ran it my, my, my sophomore through senior years. And that wound up being really helpful when I was doing festivals later because it taught me about booking and it taught me about how to write blurbs of movies to make them attractive to, to an audience. We screened this really um, densely political Italian film that was also... Uh, you know, rated X because it had some rather explicit sex scenes in it. So when I wrote the blurb, I really played up the explicit sex and downplayed the politics and we sold out four shows. It was college, <laughs> you know, you really had to get the butts in the seats. Exactly. Right. I, as someone who studied radio for 30 seconds my freshman year of college, <laughs> uh, I found out after the end of my first semester, I was like, oh, anyone can really do this it's just a matter <laughs> of like how long it's going to take when they told me i couldn't be on the air till the end of my junior year i was like i'm, well, I'm not going to do that oh that's yikes why, that's what podcasting is for and exactly. yes there's, there's only so many times you can go in and alphabetize the records or whatever right. i don't know maybe i'm dating myself i'm sure your radio station was probably all mp3 or something oh i i would not disagree uh <laughs> how would you define your writing when you first started did you was it did you just think you were a good writer or what did, has it changed? I never think I'm a good writer. <laughs> I mean, I, every, I, not entirely true. Every so often, like I'll go back a year or two later, like, you know, I, like every, like a lot of people, I'm, I, I have the curse of the, the Facebook memories, you know, oh, where I look at like you know, what happened two years ago, seven years ago, whatever. And old reviews of mine will pop up and I will occasionally click on them and I'll read them. And I'll go, huh. That was actually okay. I had some, you know, uh, but I, I have to have distance because usually when I when I am writing something or I've just written something, I, I hate it and I'm never satisfied with it. And I feel like it could be better. Um, but, you know, uh, that the other great thing is like, you know, about what we were talking before about, you know, sort of working at home and dealing with the pandemic is that, you know, my husband is my best editor and he's really good at sort of reading through stuff and being like, is this what you want to say? And what about that? And, uh, and so like, I, 
believe me, you don't want to see the drafts that I hand him. You just want to, you know, the the ones that I that wind up getting published are much better and, and all thanks to him. How do you view the world of film criticism? Has it changed for better or for worse? You know, it's definitely evolving. I mean, the only way I would say that it's worse is that it's just harder to get paying jobs. You know, it used to be that there were newspapers around the country, you know, and they all had their own film critics. And they thought that having sort of a local slash regional voice or a unique voice in that arena was important. And now, you know, newspapers are dying and the ones that are left, like, will just sort of pick up stuff off the wire or whatever. And, um, you know, I, I think a lot of people my age, you know, who were interested in film, part of why they were interested in film was reading what their city's critic had to say. Uh, and so, you know, I, I, on the one hand, it, it, it's harder to do this for a living. On the other hand, it's a lot easier to just do it, you know, whether you are just doing it out of the sheer love of it or you are trying to build up, you know, a, 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 a sort of a reservoir of, of, of clips to show to somebody in the hopes of getting hired or whatever. But yeah, I mean, the internet has obviously changed everything. It's changed accessibility. You know, the fact that, you know, all you have to do to podcast is, you know, like maybe buy the equipment or not even that, you know, just you can use what comes built into your laptop or your phone or whatever and start spreading in the world. Anybody can tweet, anybody can create a YouTube thing. And that's fine. I mean, that's, that's, you know, that, that is a very democratic process of getting the word out. However, I think, you know, obviously everybody has the, the, the critics that they go to or that they're interested in hearing what they have to say and whether they always agree with them or don't or know that they're going to disagree with them, whatever it is, you know. But I mean, I'm a believer in, in, in informed opinions, you know. I mean, we, we all come out of a movie and we think whatever we think about it. But I think if, if you are going to, if you feel like your opinion is worth sharing with others, then you kind of have some responsibility to, to, you know, bring some back up to the table and have seen some of the older movies that perhaps this movie is drawing upon or having seen other works by this director and you can, you know, evolve his or her, you know, uh, you can you can follow his or her evolution as a filmmaker or whatever. You know, I, I, I think that it's, I find it very frustrating when people act like there is no cinema before Star Wars. <laughs> I was just about to say, I'm part of this uh, film reading group where a group of actors, we read film scripts. Oh. And I was on a couple of weeks ago on a Zoom call with a group of friends of mine. And someone made this joke of, we do movies, not film. And I had, to, and I actually like was th literally thinking about this of like, is there a difference between the term movie and film? Because for one hand, I think when people think of movie, you're right. They think of Star Wars. They think of Marvel. They think of DC. And then when someone says film, you know, we're thinking of In the Mood for Love or <laughs> Metropolis or something like that. Do you see a point there or maybe not? Yeah, maybe not? I, I, I mean, I think it comes down to, you know, what is what do you find entertaining? I mean, I, I, I host a podcast called A Film and a Movie, you know, and, and sometimes yeah. people get offended by the notion that like, oh, well, so if we're saying this one's a film, you mean that other one's a movie? It's like, no, they can both be films or they can both be movies. Like it doesn't, you know, it, that, that's not the deal. I, it comes, you know, I think there are people who see movies as a means of being entertained. And it certainly yeah. is. And that's one of the things that it does really well. But, you know, I think it's a question of what entertains you, you know, I can be entertained by a 
four hour, you know, uh, movie about like, uh, you know, four middle-aged Japanese women who are friends, you know, right. uh, I, I, sorry, five hours. I'm being corrected. Oh, okay. uh, movie, movie, called, movie, movie called happy hour. Uh, you know, I can be entertained by a 24 hour art piece. That's, that's compiled of clips from other movies. That's all about the passage of time, you know, the clock, yeah. and, and I, and I can also be entertained by, you know, 80 minutes of Cary Grant and, and uh, Catherine Hepburn chasing after a leopard. I mean, like there's all kinds of different stuff. And I think the whole film versus movie thing, you, you get into this area where somehow people who don't want to see the, the harder stuff or the more complicated stuff or anything with subtitles or anything in black and white, not only do they not want to see it, they don't trust that you want to see it either. They think that you're just trying to show off or you're the, you're, you're pretending to like it because you want to look smart or you're trying to like impress some invisible group of who knows what. Uh, but you know, like I, those, those movies can and often are fun for me. It's fun for me to think about a movie while I'm watching it. Do I want to turn my brains off sometimes? Sure. Yeah. Not all the time and, and not turning my brain off doesn't mean I'm not being entertained, you know? So mm -hmm. it, it's a, it, it's a dichotomy that I think people come up with because they just choose not to explore these other kinds of movies, or maybe they, they tried a few and didn't like them and that's fine. And great. No, I'm, no one's forcing anybody to like anything, but like, don't, don't act like anybody who likes something that you don't is, has some weird agenda about it, you know? Right. And it also just feels like some of the stories that we're so used to in like 80s and 90s, like Dak Shepard mentioned, like broadcast news, for example, that's a story. If you put it on now, that's going to TV for 10 to 13 episodes, it feels like. Oh, yeah. Or like, I, I David, <laughs> or like David Lynch, for example, like he mm. hasn't done a movie since 2006. He did an 18 hour film <laughs> instead that was on Showtime. And he, yeah, sorry. No, no, no. I mean, yeah, it's a constantly evolving thing. You know, what passes where I mean, like, I, I recently, for some reason, was looking back at like the top 10 lists of going back to like 1980 or 1975. And you look back and movies like Terms of Endearment and On Golden Pond were like some of the big money makers of that year, you know, and yeah, nowadays, cable, thank you, you know, or, or like, you know, art house released to 10 theaters or whatever. But I think that, you know, people's tastes used to be like, I think you could, you could run a studio and as long as you had like a, a big, you know, disaster epic or shark movie or space thing or whatever that was making a lot of money. And then at the same time, you could also have these sort of like, you know, adult dramas that cost about a third as much and would make an equivalent amount. But now it's like you have to have the two movies that are going to make a billion dollars mm -hmm. and then you have no idea how to make a movie for less than a hundred million dollars, you know? Right. And, and so that's, and that's just the industry. And I, I, my, at this point it's gotten to where, you know, what's exciting about something like WandaVision is the notion that, all right, we're going to do the superhero thing because everybody wants the superhero thing, but we're going to package it in a different way. And we're going to like, we're going to not give you people shooting bolts at each other for five or six episodes, you know, and we're going to couch it in other things. And it's going to be about recognizable human emotion. And we're going to play around with genre and, and, and meta text and all this other stuff. And it's like, okay, well, 
if if that's the you know i'm not sure what's the vegetables and what's the mac and cheese in this analogy but you know if 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 you're going to if that's how you're going to get your weird show across because it also has superheroes in it then great more power to you right right it's it's like i was i don't know if you remember the show stupid for movies on youtube i don't know that one uh, it's all. They ended it like a long time ago. They had uh, Mark Kaiser and Wade Major, um, two film oh, critics. Okay, I know them. Yeah, and Wade would go on this rant of like how studios. He he knew people who go in and they lowball the budget. Uh, this sci-fi action movie and it's seventy-five million dollars. And the studio was like, "Oh, well, that's too bad because we're looking for something in the hundred and fifty million to the two hundreds because <laughs> you think the bigger budget's going to get the bigger audience." You know, of course, because that or, always works. Yeah. Oh, right. Like I just seen a poster of Tom Cruise running with like an explosion behind him, and just call it like Hollywood or something like that, because you know that, that that's just going to be something eventually. That's going to happen, probably. Yeah, but you know what? Like, not even not even that is a sure is a guaranteed sure thing, and and nothing ever is, which is the whole point of this, you know. But it's like they would rather risk, you know, the store on one. $500 million movie that might make that might make them $2 billion than on, you know, like 10 $50 million movies, one of which might earn, you know, 300 million. I don't know. I I'm not a math guy, but you know what I'm saying? It's like, the, <laughs> yeah. there used to be a bit more of a balance, but yeah, you're right. Now it is more about television. And, and in a way that's not necessarily a bad thing because I mean, television no longer has the constraints it once did you know you can you can deal with adult topics you can curse and have nudity and all the stuff that you used to have to you used to have to do in the movies um but you know i i think i think that the it i don't know the it's it's hard to say even now what the movie going public is and what the movie going public wants. We've all had a year of being deprived of it in general. Right. Um, I, I certainly when, when they come back, risks are not going to be what they're interested in. You know, movie theater chains are desperate for big and loud and flashy because that's what people go see now. I mean, that's, that's what people go see in the theater because they, they're not going to think to themselves, Oh, well, that sounds nice. I'm going to just kick the can down the road six months and I'll see it on Netflix. But, you know, uh, like, you know, Gravity, I think, wound up being a big game changer for that because they realized, oh, we can have like an adult skewing awards magnet movie that also people will leave the house because they want to see it in IMAX. Right. You know, because and for a while there, they were trying to hit that formula. There was that like Mount Everest movie. And, you know, there were oh. a couple there were a couple of movies where they were trying to be like, you know, it's a grown movie but you can't you shouldn't watch at home because it's so big you know right uh and then i think they kind of gave up on that now it's just superheroes 24 7 but yeah i don't i don't know where we are or where we're going with this but i, I do know that there was a time when hollywood could the big when a big studio could do all of those things at the same time and you know stay afloat yeah and even think about like what theater chains are going for and we've been on this rant now for 20 minutes but i think it's so interesting about <laughs> Hollywood, uh, I think it's great, but like, I think there's just like, I think people now this this one university we're looking on, there's just like, now people are just looking for escapism at this point, and they don't really want to be challenged. You know, if they, they, we've been challenged enough by having at home lockdowns, like I, I know California has had multiple at home lockdowns, and so people I think are just clamoring for escape escapism, and sadly, it's the two hundred million dollar blockbuster that kind of is. 
yeah i mean that's where we are right now that's you know that's the kind of escapism they know how to make you know we'll get a few musicals in there i'm sure but for the most part yeah it's gonna be you know i i mean frankly the, the movies that i have found the most sort of oddly moving you know in during this time just have been movies that are that sort of celebrate communal gatherings you know that that's mm -hmm. a thing that, that we've been that we've been deprived of so you know when you watch something like um lover's rock you know when you just all those people in that room and the music and they're all you can just sense they're all like perspiring next to each other and and it's just like it's so visceral like that 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 that's one of the most that's one of the moments of, of a movie in the last year that stayed with me the most because it just it kindled in me this longing that I have for human connection because that's just mm -hmm. not happening right now. Like, did you see um, David Byrne's American Utopia? Yes. Like, I saw that movie first on my computer, and then once mm -hmm. I moved, I saw it on my big screen TV, and it was just it, it, as someone who's an actor and hasn't done hasn't been in a theater in about mm -hmm. a year and a half. Like, yeah. the clamor of being in the theater and be watching and performing really is yeah it makes Ham me really descend hamilton same way you know right. absolutely it just it, it is that there is that electricity that, that we've been deprived of you know right but it's going to come back anyway we've been on a tangent for so long it's great so so you you went to vanderbilt and then is it true you got an internship in atlanta uh, yes i did get to work for a summer at the atlanta journal constitution and um it was, I think that's where I realized that I'm not a journalist. <laughs> you know, I like when I was, when, when I wanted to be a film critic, you know, you wrote for newspapers. That's what they did. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to go work for a newspaper. I'm terrible at investigating anything. I mean, I would, not that they were like sending me off to like, you know, find, you know, negligent landlords or anything, but just sort of the basics of like, uh, you know, uh, you know, doing like a feature story and covering the the ground. It's just it, there are people that do it really well, and it's just not my thing, you know. Right. I, and, and I really learned that that summer. Like, oh yeah, this is not like I have. There's this one thing in the world of newspapers that I want to do, and the rest of it is. <laughs> <laughs> you, you were watching Lou Grant instead. It's like that's that that's journalism right there. Exactly. It was an interesting time to be there. It was the summer of '87, and in the summer of '88, Atlanta was getting the uh, the the Democratic convention. So okay. the paper was in this process of really trying to like get ready for the eyes of the world, you know? So uh, yeah, it, it was, it was a great experience and I, I did learn a lot, but a lot of what I learned of like, okay, this is not my wheelhouse. <laughs> so that made you want to go. So then after that, you got a job in Dallas for the Dallas times Herald. And that, yes. that was how long, how long were you doing that for? That was about, I was there for about six months. Um, and it was weird because they had originally hired me to be their sort of weekend calendar editor, like assistant editor, like I was going to work on. They, they did like a pullout, you know, with all the restaurant listings and movies and plays and live music and yada, yada. And then by the time I got there, I was, I had been made the music writer. <laughs> oh. um, yeah. For this totally random reason, apparently at some point the year prior to my arriving, um, this uh, group of people who represented like country music radio stations and country music live venues and stuff in the city of Dallas showed like had a meeting at the paper like why don't you guys write about us why aren't you covering it like these this is the here are our numbers of the people who listen the people who show up for these shows like we want more country music coverage in the paper and 
I was moving there from Nashville, which is where Vanderbilt is. And so I guess they thought that I knew about country music, <laughs> which I did a little. I mean, I, right. you know, I'd absorbed some from living there, but I mean, like I was, that was certainly not my like area of expertise. Um, yeah, that, that gig wound up not lasting very long. I wrote a really snotty review of a concert that was co-sponsored by the paper and a radio station that had a very influential morning DJ. And he was not amused by my snarky review of this oh. concert and basically got me fired. So oh, no. that was that was how my first real gig out of college went. But, you know, and, and the, your parents the Dallas Times Herald no longer exists and I'm still here. So there you go. I was going to say, look who's left now. <laughs> I was like, was that, and at this point, were your parents still like, okay, if this is what you want to do? <laughs> uh, yeah. My mom had passed away actually while I was in college. Uh, and then, okay. yeah, my father was like, you know, I wasn't thrilled that, you know, I was kind of bouncing around there for a while from, from thing to thing, but I think he kind of understood that that was, this was just what was going to be happening. And I think he probably, I'm sure that was again, the offer of like, really, if you want to go to grad school, I can, uh, uh, but you know, thankfully, uh, you know, I, I, I did, I landed on my feet pretty quickly after that. I, within a year I was, um, I was working at, uh, at the USA film festival in Dallas, which was the first of many festival gigs. I was going to say, look, we can get into that now. So like, what does like working at a film festival entail or how did it start out for you? Uh, it started out for me that, um, you know, when I, when I moved to Dallas uh, in 89 to, for this gig at the Times Herald, um, I went to the USA Film Festival because I'd never really lived in a city that had a, a, a this a major film festival. And so it was very exciting. I, I bought, I think I bought tickets for like every time slot of the week, you know, I was watching something, um, you know, and I, and I got to see like, you know, stuff that has kind of disappeared from view, but also like, you know, I got to see Heather's before it opened and Dan Waters did the Q and A. And, you know, there were a lot of interesting things going on. And then I got to know the people at the festival and, uh, and then uh, the following year they were hiring a, an assistant programmer and so I applied and I got the gig. So, you know, that was, that really kind of threw me in the deep end. But again, luckily I, like I said, I had that booking experience from, from doing the campus cinema. So I had some idea about like how to talk to distributors and, you know, setting things up. And um, it was, and it was very exciting. I, I, I liked it a lot and uh, I liked, I liked working there. It was a small office and it was, you know, after a couple of years there, I realized there wasn't really a lot of room for advancement. Like basically there was the associate programmer and then there was, you know, the artistic director. And unless the artistic director left, like there was no other, there was nowhere else to sort of, you know, uh, you know, there, there was no promotion to be gotten, which is why I wound up moving to LA the first time. You know? Right. And how was your experience? How has your experience in LA been like? Uh, well, I, you know, I, I moved here twice. I, I, I was here oh. for a couple of years and then I moved back to Dallas in 95 to become the artistic director. The, the guy ahead of me did finally go off and, and do something else. He's still uh, doing festival work in Northern California. Um, so I went back for five years and, and, and ran the festival, at least, you know, the, the programming side. And it's great. I mean, I think, I think festivals are terrific. And, and I hope that even as, movie going fluctuates that it, they still become a thing that people will leave the house for that people will be interested in attending because part of it is seeing the movies but i think there's this whole other human element to festivals both the 
the the guests who show up you know who come and talk about the films and that's a really great way to interact with maybe names you know but also sort of up and comers or people who just like have an interesting story oh this is a documentary that i've spent the last 15 years working on and here's you know how i did it yada, yada. but then also just the audiences you know i think you you i have always you know in in the times that i've gotten to go to festivals that i wasn't working at you know, you just, you start striking up conversations with people in the lobby or who wind up sitting next to you and, you know, they, they're fascinating. And, and so, you know, I, I think that's as much as I'm, I'm glad that like all the big festivals in the last year have managed to figure out how to go virtual and, you know, sell tickets online and do zoom Q and A's or whatever. Uh, you know, I, I, I do think that they really do thrive on the in-personness of it all. And so, um, you know, so I hope that that even younger generations of filmgoers who are just used to watching everything at home, like, can still look upon, can see something in festivals that makes them go, oh, I need to be there for that. Right. Because, you know, like theater, there's an energy and that oh, people yeah, just love being there. Sure. Right. And then... So then, see, and then what's Outfest? I know you're you're involved with Outfest a lot, and you've been doing that. Um, tell people about it. What is yeah, it? Yeah, uh, Outfest is the Los Angeles LGBT Film Festival, and I've been an associate programmer for them for a while now. Um, and yeah, they, you know, the, it, it's a really kind of fascinating arc, just as sort of in terms of like uh, how I think queer issues have been, you know, part of the media and part of the industry being this Los, the Los Angeles festival. Like it started in 1982 and was started by, you know, like a handful of students at UCLA. Um, and it has since evolved obviously into this huge festival. Like, you know, we, I, it is, I've, I've heard it referred to by filmmakers as the gay Sundance. Like it's, it oh. is the, if you, if you're, if you want your film to play at a queer festival, you really want it to play at Outfest. And I think we have a reputation for for like, you know, presenting a lot of really amazing movies. And I think also the fact that we're in Los Angeles means that if you come to the festival, you know, maybe you can like take some meetings, like maybe you'll get an agent out of this or you'll find a manager or you'll connect with other people in the industry. Like maybe this guy wants to produce your next movie or whatever. Um, you know, and so uh, in the time that I've been in outfits, I think they've really kind of uh, shifted their focus where they're all about it, it's sort of a it's sort of a past present future thing which I think is great so for past mm -hmm. there's the Outfest Legacy Project the Outfest UCLA Legacy Project which we do with the UCLA Film and TV Archive which is like the largest repository of LGBT titles anywhere in the world and they've done a number of restorations over the years um, of films that, that just might otherwise have been lost because like there's no big studio that's keeping them you know in a vault somewhere um, you know present is the festival itself in terms of you know like spotlighting new movies and 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 the people who make them and and you know getting attention for them and then the future is about the educational program so you know outfest is a screenwriting lab every year they do a program here in los angeles called outset where um filmmakers between the ages of like 16 to 24 come in 15 of them are chosen to take this class it's a very intensive thing where mentors from different areas of, of filmmaking and production come in um they all write screenplays five of them get chosen and turned you know their shorts that get filmed and then they premiered outfest and they wind up going to other festivals and you know people have come out of that program and you know that's gotten them into like nyu's film school or whatever and so uh yeah i think they do really important work and and i'm, I'm happy to have been you know associated with them right and when you joined them was it at was it popular was it big is it as big as it is now 
Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it, it's always been pretty big in, in Los Angeles because, you know, when I started going just as a critic covering films there in, you know, like 93, 94, um, you know, there weren't a lot of queer media options. You know, we didn't have like, this was pre Will and Grace and pre Queer as Folk. And, and, you know, there really wasn't much on television. There wasn't a whole lot happening in mainstream cinema. So if you wanted to see stories that reflected your life, like this is where you went. And so it just like, it was very well attended and very popular. And I think over the years, even as the media at large has diversified, I think that Outfest has managed to maintain its relevance. And I think still has a, a devoted audience of people who maybe are, this is the one chance they're going to have to see like films from other countries that uh, may or may not get any kind of distribution in the US or to, you know, attend panels and hear from, you know, people who are either they could be established producers, they could be, you know, somebody who's made a web series, you know, like it's all kinds of different people coming together to talk about this stuff. And so I think that even though we've come a huge way uh, at including, you know, queer issues in mainstream media, uh, you know, it, it, it's not everything. And, and so there's still a lot of work for Outfest to do. All right, for sure. I, I, I think that's awesome. Um, there's a, there's something that I'm always curious about is teaching. And I'm, as someone who's an education minor, uh, I was a TA in theater classes. I'm currently a preschool teacher right now for, oh, cool. um, a neighborhood of kids, um, all girls and me, Mr. Matt, which is always, <laughs> which I, I like, I like it. They're adorable. Um, now did you, you wear the tie for me or were you teaching earlier and you wore it for them? Oh, I wore the tie for, for them. <laughs> okay. Like, this is like my Mr. Schuster look. So that's, that's. <laughs> Like, like the mom, every time the moms see me, they're like, you don't really have to dress up for them. I'm like, no, I kind of want to. I really don't mind. Uh, it, it, you're getting into character. I get it. <laughs> right. And that's why I haven't shaved because they're, you know, curving me up the wall. Uh, <laughs> but you taught at uh, Chapman University. Yes. Um, and so I'm always curious because when I've had a lot of professors on this show and I always ask them this question of like, did, did you see yourself or do you see yourself in students of yours? Whether the way they write, the way they talk, the way they act, personality-wise, did you see an Alonzo in your teaching students? <laughs> well, I, I, I mean, I wasn't teaching film criticism. I was actually teaching film students, which um, <clears throat> I think pretty much most of, I mean, with a few exceptions, they were pretty much all there for production like that's really the main thing that that Chapman is about and they have you know extraordinary facilities to do so and and you know I think it's it's it, it certainly if 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 you were looking to go to a school where you know you were going to have cameras to rent and studio space and all that kind of stuff that you would need <clears throat> this is the place to go so not so much because I, I pretty much like I said the, these were people who wanted to make film which has never been my thing like I know it's a popular canard against film critics that were all frustrated you know screenwriters or directors or whatever and and you know we couldn't hack it so now we have to take down everybody else right. uh but that was just never i never saw that as a path for me so uh i think there was one semester where i taught uh a, an lgbt cinema class which was really interesting mm -hmm. and and fairly unusual because i mean i think chapman is uh, something of a conservative institution i think they have there's some religious backing there i don't know um there were students, it wasn't so much that I saw myself, but I saw what my life might have been like if I had been able to be out of the closet in college. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. Uh, you know, like I had, I, I, I had, a, it was a mix of grad students and undergrads. And there was an undergrad who was like a queer studies minor. And I was like, you know, that that's so alien to my experience of going to the college, going to college in the mid eighties, like, you know, but I was thrilled for, for, for that person to, to be pursuing that, you know? Um, but no, I, I don't, not really. I think I, I, they were fascinating and I, I had a lot of really great students and I've kept in touch with some of them, but no, they, I, I was not seeing mini me's anywhere. No. Right. I'm always just curious because usually the professors who, I guess I've been on who have been teaching for 20 years, they've seen like a glimpse of like their younger selves and that like always like freaks them out. Of, like this was <laughs> me when I was like in my twenties, you know? <laughs> How do um, I stop me before it's too late? <laughs> Saying no, um, something like that. I don't know what that was. Uh, um, anyway, uh, uh, so the one thing I do need to ask um, is linoleum, linoleum knife. Um, so I know that you were doing like the Rotten Tomato show and uh, uh, something else and that were both canceled. Yeah, there was a um, show on IFP called The Grid. Oh, The Grid, okay. Yes. And you remember you were, <laughs> I right. I I had my tie on that day, you know. Of course. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, with with a damn good cup of coffee, says. <laughs> um, but you, but you convinced your husband Dave if you wanted to do a podcast together, right? Yeah, yeah. Basically, the the idea was, yeah. Though I I was doing those two shows, they they both got canceled very in very quick procession, and I just thought I I want to have something where I can pull the plug, but nobody else can. And so, yeah, so I, t I talked him into it. He was reluctant at first, but um, thankfully, you know, because he is the greatest husband on earth, he went along with it and it worked out. Like we actually, right. it's a thing we enjoy doing and it's a thing we, it, it's become a revenue generator, shockingly enough. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's how the podcast started. And we, I think we missed the very, very first wave of podcasting. Like I remember it I existing so. before I knew what it was. But we're definitely like we we just hit our tenth anniversary in November, so I think that's older than a lot of currently airing podcasts. So you know we're in the middle there somewhere. Yeah, I don't mean to age anyone here, but like I was listening to your show in like 2011, 2012, uh -huh. uh, and I was and the, the, I think you got this criticism before, and you're like, man, they don't really talk about movies like the first thirty minutes or something. They're talking <laughs> about like the food or something or like what they're making and like when i was you know 14 or 15 i'm like just get to the damn movies already <laughs> but now like sometimes i just fall asleep to you guys just listen to these stories <laughs> well, i will say thanks no no uh, sir, no no I I, I'll, I'll get i'll get into this in a minute but like i was in the, two weeks ago i was in the hospital uh, i just oh. i got diagnosed with uh type 1 diabetes oh, and man. And for the first night, they had to wake you up to prick your finger to check your blood sugar. Mm. And so I was just having a crappy day already. And so I was like, I need something to cheer me up. My laptop's dead. Uh, my And so and I don't want to watch anything right now. So I listened to your show. And it helped me like oh. fall asleep or wake back up. Because I even hear Dave's like, <laughs> <kind of laughs> laugh. 
<laughs> that is that is very sweet. Thank you very much. Yeah, um, like, yeah. I, I, we we kind of we figured out like when we first started, it was like, well, the episode shouldn't be longer than twenty minutes, you know. But that didn't last very long, and then yeah, it just became a thing where like it was just sort of us having this conversation, and at some point, the conversation will and does you know turn to movies, but we're not in a huge hurry to get there, and so people who listen who listen to the show and that that find that frustrating will just stop listening, and that's fine. Right. But the people who are on board for that are really on board for that and so uh so that's the show because heaven knows there's no shortage of two dudes talking about movie podcasts so right. you know we have to bring something different to the table god i had a i had a i don't have the list with me but there's like a list of like my favorite moments of the show like <laughs> dave's like 30 minute story of the big wedding being with the coast and <laughs> with all the cake <laughs> Or like when you're talking, I, maybe I don't want to keep repeating you guys, but like when you did the gray and you're, and Dave made this announcement of like Liam Neeson's real life with this tragic uh, passing of his wife. And you're like, oh God, you, you start to get very upset. And it was like this long pause and Dave goes, makes you want to like treat me with a little bit more respect, right? <laughs> like it's, it makes me laugh. Um, but there's one thing you guys do, which is you knife movies. People send in like their top 10 favorite movies and you knife them. Was that yeah. something that you always wanted to do or how did that start? No, I think, I God, I don't even remember how that started. I think that maybe people just started sending us top 10 lists and saying like, you know, what do you think? And then Dave came up with the idea of you are 100% knife or whatever, you know, like based on the, you know, the, the ones we like versus the ones we didn't. But no, it was, that was, that was like so much of the show came up by accident like we, we really had very little idea what we were getting into or how we were going to do it so it's just sort of jerkily evolved over the years I mean if you go back and listen to the very first episodes like you're only going to hear them in one ear because I didn't know how to record in stereo yet like we really had no idea what we're doing and arguably still don't 10 years later so you know it, it's it's all very haphazard <laughs> will it be okay if I present my my list and you can knife me <laughs> uh sure let's why not <laughs> okay i think I, I i was writing this up saying i think you might give me more than 70 percent okay. um, let's I'm, just see right. ordinary people okay titus yeah it uh in the mood for love mm -hmm. the man who laughs uh is that like emil yannings or yeah, that's like early, like 1920s. Like an UFA film. Yeah, I, I have not seen it, so I'll give you that one. Okay. Uh, Shattered Glass. Uh, okay, yeah. Uh, uh, What's Up, Doc? Oh, now you're just, now you're just pandering to me. <laughs> yeah. uh, Mr. Mr. Holland's Opus. Okay, no. <laughs> okay, well, okay, I lost you there. Uh, it's a Wonderful Life. Sure, yes, of course. Won't You Be My Neighbor? Uh-huh. Titus. You said Titus. Oh, never mind. Oh, I did. Uh <laughs> goodbye forever and amen to serious finale of MASH. <laughs> uh, half hours. Cheating, but yes, I suppose yes. Okay, I'll allow it. It's All right. hours. Is that your list? That's my list. All right, you are you are 90% knife. Hey, uh, best grades I got in a long time, so I'll take it. <laughs> Uh, well, before we do our game, I have one yes. uh, subject, which is, I think, very, I'm curious about. You wrote this book called Have Yourself a Movie, a Little Christmas. Mm -hmm. um, how, how did the, why is Christmas so important to you? And, you know, what can, why, why did you want to write this book about it? 
you know, I, again, it, it's that whole youngest of seven thing. Uh, Christmas is always a huge deal in my house, and and my mom always made it really great. And uh, also because I was so much younger than my siblings, Christmas was usually the one one of the few times of the year that we were all home because uh, you know they were all going off to college or whatever. And so I just always carry great memories of Christmas with me. I, you know, it's a, it's one of my favorite times of year and I've always loved movies. So, you know, just sort of like, it just became the, the chocolate and the peanut butter to put together, you know, um, it's been interesting, you know, like really digging in deep into the, the topic. And I think what I love about Christmas movies is that they often have such a redemptive arc that we wouldn't buy in a non-Christmas movie. Like, but there's this notion that people will find the best versions of themselves or people will forgive somebody or people will resolve a longstanding beef, you know, because it's Christmas, you know, and for no other reason, like that's all it takes. That's what, that's what they need. And that's what makes it happen. And, uh, and I just, I find that really satisfying in a lot of ways. And, um, you know, also, I think just the other thing is like, if you ever want to be an expert in something, find the thing that no one else is an expert in. <laughs> and there you go. There you go. We have Christmas. <laughs> and I, I must say, how much is your DVR filled up with those like Hallmark movies? <laughs> well, actually, I have a, a book coming out this fall called I'll Be Home for Christmas Movies, which I co-wrote <laughs> with the guys who do the Deck the Hallmark podcast. Well, uh, I, I, I kind of, you know, chopped and channeled their podcast into a movie guide. So they review 116 Hallmark movies in this oh, book. So. Okay. Well, well, we'll be on the lookout for that. It kind, of, it kind of stinks that, you know, this episode's not airing close to Christmas because it would have been perfect, you know? Uh, hey, take it up with the guy who schedules the episodes. Well, hi. I'm here because uh, you asked me. I would have had yeah, well, I, I know. Well, I, have no, I have no one to blame but myself. That was fun. Anyway, so... We have some time. We're going to play a game called uh, yes. Time for Two. And this okay. is two minutes on a clock. It is a series of random icebreaker questions. There's no right. There is no wrong. We're just curious to see your opinion. Okay. All right. Are you ready? Let's do it. All right. Three, two, one, go. On a scale of one to 10, how cool do you feel having your own Wikipedia page? <laughs> Four. <laughs> Karaoke sound of choice. Uh, World of Our Own by Westlife. Nice. What's the best way to spend a rainy afternoon? Uh, reading under a blanket. Ooh. What chore do you absolutely hate doing? Uh, dusting anything. McDonald's or Burger King? McDonald's. Morning or night person? Night. Deal or no deal? <laughs> Let's make a deal. Yeah. Uh, left Twix, Twix, or right Twix? Uh, all Twix in my mouth, please. <laughs> what would you do for a Klondike bar? What wouldn't I do for a Klondike bar? There we go. Uh, are you afraid of Virginia Woolf? Uh, no, but I am afraid of Sandy Dennis. Oh, okay. Uh, how many licks does it take to get to the center of a Tootsie Pop? All of them. Uh, what is your name? Alonzo Duraldi. What is your quest? <laughs> I seek the grail. Ah, where is the airspeed philosophy of an unladen swallow? African or European? Ah, there we go. Uh, do you play video games? I do not, but Have I ever... play a lot of stupid phone games. Oh, 
There we go. Uh, is Candy Crush the greatest game on the phone ever? Uh, I'm a Disney emoji blitz guy myself, but if you uh, like Candy Crush, I get why. Fine, my bad. Uh, favorite celebrity, Chris? Uh, I'm trying to come up with something clever, and I, they're, they're all escaping me now. So uh, I'll, uh, Christopher Plummer. Oh, there we go. Uh, favorite Ab Abba song? Uh, today, it's The Winner Takes It All. Last one. Describe your life. Bugs Life or Toy Story? <laughs> uh, you know, uh, I, am, uh, I am both potato heads from Toy Story. <laughs> and on that note, that's how we end the game. <laughs> there you go. Alonzo, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. Uh, my last question to you is, uh, are your parents proud of you? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that ultimately they wanted to, me to be happy and employed and I managed that. So I, I think they are. Um, <laughs> Alonzo, thank you again for coming. This was so much fun. Thanks for having me. This was a treat. That was Alonzo Duralde. Like I said, you can catch all his podcasts wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, I highly recommend him all. And he is such a great person to talk to. Uh, you can also watch him on Breakfast All Day, which is on YouTube, uh, as well as listen to him on the podcast. Also, if you just want to check out uh, What the Flick, uh, you can YouTube that. All those videos are still available, part of the TYT network. So that's Alonzo. It was so cool. And hey, uh, speaking of places where you get your podcast, where can people find this podcast, Matt? Did, did you like that segue? Did you I, like how great, I did that? That was a great segue. You right. can find us on uh, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Red Circle, Stitcher, YouTube, uh, all, you name it. We're probably on there. Um, it's been it's been great. And here's the thing: comment and share this podcast with your friends and your family. We really, let's get the word around. Let's keep growing this show even bigger. We want we want to go from a baby podcast to an adult podcast. You know exactly well yeah. there's a few there's a few steps in between baby and adult right well as well we're, um, right now, we're right now like seven years old right sure um you can also find a like us on facebook at parents proud podcast and instagram at parents proud podcast you can also email us please it is it it is so i i cannot begin to describe you we got our first email, by the way. The serotonin that flows through me when we get an email. <laughs> um, and it's parentsproudpodcast at gmail.com. Please Absolutely. email us. We, right. we will read your emails yes. and possibly respond to them. Awesome. Um, but hey, Griffin, so we got we to gotta shift because we got something big. Um, oh, is it next week? Next week. Next week. Next week is the season finale. A season three finale. The the we've been doing this since September. It's the spring finale of season three of this show, and we went out with a bang because we have the man, the myth, the legend, Brian Shaw. He is a professor. Oh. He's an actor. He is a divisor. We recorded this episode already, and I must say, I am so excited to see what people think. I I, think I we I mean we have been trying to get Brian Shaw on this show since like we started since before season one right and we've been talking about him yeah and we and of course we had his lovely wife stephanie yes. shaw uh on during our first season so now we'll get we'll get the other shaw we're completing the circle 
we are completing the circle. Then n- next we go track down their kids. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> and interview them too. No. And on that uh, note, that's perfect. Please, please don't arrest him. I am. It's okay. Him. I'm. It's, it's okay. They won't arrest. They won't arrest me. Good night, everyone. I guess I'm the official criminal this week. Oh yeah. Your Good night, everyone. Don't worry. I I'm definitely not going to kidnap anyone's children. Oh, Bye, everybody. Bye, everyone.